Good day and welcome to what will be the impact on U.S. LNG exports on Global Gas Market Conference Call. The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such person's or organization's sole risk. All lines are currently in a listen-only mode. Later, you will have the opportunity to ask questions during the question and answer session. And please note today's call is being recorded. It is now my pleasure to turn the conference over to Mr. Tom Wallen. Please go ahead. Thank you. Uh, I'm Tom Wallen. I'm the uh, editor-in-chief here at Energy Intelligence. And it's, uh, um, it's a pleasure to welcome all of you to our March virtual roundtable. Um, our topic, um, as you know, is the, uh, the impact of U.S. LNG exports on global gas markets. And we have with us today uh, three uh, of our in-house experts on this subject. Um, from London, we have Jane Collin, who's the editor of World Gas Intelligence. And uh, from Houston, we have Tom Haywood, who's the editor of Natural Gas Week. And from Washington, we have Mark Davidson, who's our bureau chief there. Um, I think as we, we're all aware, these U.S. LNG exports are starting at a very challenging time uh, with LNG prices in Asia now at the lowest levels in many years and U.S. and European gas markets also under extreme pressure. Um, not at all what was expected uh, a couple of years ago um, um, when we sort of uh, start to envision this ramp up of U.S. LNG exports. So let's let's delve into this. Um, I want to start um, by asking a question to Tom in Houston, um, and and the question is basically with the start of U.S. LNG exports from the Gulf Coast late this month. Can you give us an idea of how fast these volumes could ramp up over the next few years, and how much of an increase this re represents in global LNG supply? Thanks, Tom. Let's talk about uh, liquefaction capacity first, because the actual volume of LNG that will be exported from the lower 48 uh, is an open question. Um, Chenier did get the ball rolling in March when it exported uh, its first commissioning cargo at Train 1. It's having passed LNG in Louisiana. And this uh, 4.5 million ton per year train will be followed by four others with uh, one rolled out every six months. And meanwhile, four other projects will begin bringing trains online in a similar staggered manner. So the increase in capacity is smooth but steep. Um, if construction plans go as expected, and there's no reason to believe it won't, the U.S. lower 48 will have 15 tons of capacity by this time next year and 30 tons of capacity by spring 2018 and about 60 tons of capacity by spring 2019. So a total of 62 tons of LNG capacity will be online in 2020, which will be able to liquefy and export 8.3 billion cubic feet of gas per day, which is a huge amount when you consider that it represents a 25% increase in global LNG supply of around 32 billion cubic feet per day. Okay, thanks, Tom. Um, 
And and Jane, you know these, these U.S. exports are coming into the global LNG market uh, that's already oversupplied, um, and so you know there's this big big volume, at least in terms of capacity, that Tom is talking about. Um, can you tell us how serious the oversupply is in the market and how long it's likely to last? Well, um, yeah, well, as Tom just said, um, the U.S. Uh, project should add about 24, well, would increase global supply by about 25%. And in total estimates are that between 2014 and 2020, um, production capacity will increase by about 40% globally. And as you, as you said a bit earlier, the market is in pretty terrible shape. The um, new supply is coming online at a time when demand particularly in Asia, is extremely disappointing. Um, demand has probably peaked in the world's two biggest LNG exporters, Japan and Korea, and growth has weakened in China. Um, last year, LNG imports into China actually fell for the first time ever after growing by about 20% annually the previous four years. Um, the the um, what, and now what's happened is a lot of Asian buyers are, have overcontracted supply. They have more supplies than they know what to do with and aren't signing any new long-term contracts. And it's reflected in prices, the glut, along with the oil price collapse. Um, for example, term prices, which are oil indexed in Asia, are currently about 30% down on year-ago levels. Spot um, LNG prices in Asia are assessed about 40% lower, um, which has left them very close to levels in Europe. I mean, not much higher than um, prices in Europe, which have themselves fallen. And so the question is, how long will this situation last? Um, obviously, the market's cyclical, the industry's cyclical, and uh, the market will tighten again at some point. Um, but what's happened is the price collapse, along with buyers' virtual refusal to sign for, uh, up for new long-term contracts, has brought um, the construction of new uh, liquefaction capacity to a halt both inside and outside the U.S. The only project outside the U.S. sanctioned last year was a small floating scheme off Cameroon, and I think project approval stopped in the U.S. last year, last, last July. Um, so anyway, we've got no new capacity apart from what's already under construction, nothing new is going ahead. So the question is, at what point will the glut play out? Um, early last year, before the sort of collapsing, well, the, the very disappointing growth in Asian demand became clearer, uh, some producers have been saying, oh, but, you know, by the end of this decade, if nothing new gets sanctioned, there could be shortages. Well, they stopped saying that. Um, 22, 2022, 20, 23, or I've seen... 2025. I mean, shortages may not occur before then. And in fact, just last week, the head of Petronas, um, which is still to take FID on one of the big uh, Canadian West Coast projects, actually said 2023 himself. So that obviously is the thinking. And so, to, so, so when you say shortages, you mean when sort of projected supply and demand come? Yeah, about? yeah, yeah, yeah. When the market tightens so much that yeah, shortages actually could start occurring by then. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Well, Mark, um, uh, what do the current economics look like for these U.S. LNG exports to Asia and Europe? I mean, in, in the current market realities, um, can we expect can we expect all this U.S. export capacity to be used uh, in such a challenging environment? Well, I think uh, I think it's clear a, a theme is developing here that the short-term economics are are daunting uh, for the. Uh, 
for the U.S. LNG exporters and and may you know may not uh, appear good until you know the early 2020s. Um, you know, as as Tom and Jane mentioned, you know the the first LNG exports out of the lower 48 states are going into a market that uh, needs this gas less than ever. Uh, you know, as for specific markets, um, when many of these U.S. projects were proposed, you know, gas in Japan was was trading at about $17 per million BTU. That's down to about $5 now. The, and the story is the same in Europe. It's gone from about $12 two years ago to below 4 today. So even with U.S. gas prices, you know, hovering below these $2 levels, I mean, the net back between these uh, gas coming out of the Gulf Coast and these European and Asian markets um, don't even come close to covering the cost of transportation, not to mention other um, liquefaction and regasification costs involved. Um, Jane did talk some about the um, the Asian demand slipping for various reasons. But uh, Europe has its own set of challenges. Uh, just last week, Wood McKenzie put out a pretty eye-opening report suggesting that up to half of U.S. LNG exports could be shut in over the next five years um, thanks to a combination of market conditions in Europe. Um, and because of that, it said the average utilization of these uh, U.S. LNG export capacity between 2017 and 2020 would vary from 54% to 100%. So that is quite a wide range uh, they're looking at there. Um, and for one of the biggest challenges to the U.S. exporters is possibly Russia. Um, a number of analysts expect Gazprom to aggressively protect its European market share against these incoming U.S. gas supplies. And in fact, it has the ability to do so because it has 100 billion cubic meters of annual gas production capacity just sitting in Siberia. And so the thinking is that Russia would mimic Saudi Arabia's strategy of elevating output to protect market share. And the reality is that Gazprom can indeed ship gas to most European markets at a lower cost than LNG coming in from across the Atlantic. So, you know, again, things begin looking better for U.S. LNG exporters beyond 2020, um, you know, when European demand is expected to rise and infrastructure is in place to receive these cargoes. But the next few years um, certainly appear to be dicey at best. I mean, Mark, in terms of the, just like current prices, um, there, it, 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 it's just not profitable to send send this uh, gas at least at current spot prices to Europe or to Asia, correct? That's right. The collapse, sort of the global oversupply has caused a collapse in prices worldwide. And even though there are, you know, prices in Europe and Asia are higher than they are in the U.S., the because they're all so low compared to where they were three years ago, um, the the difference, the differentials are just not big enough to, to you know, to be profitable um, for. And, and, and that's even with U.S. gas markets kind of at at a historic low as well. That's right. So that's right. It's like I mean, this, it it, the U.S. gas market. It's very hard to see how it can go, it can go a lot lower. But exactly. Yeah. 
But even at you know even at prices below two dollars, you're looking at a maximum of maybe a three dollar differential to Asian markets, which you know compares to about a twelve dollar differential when some of these projects were proposed and seen as you know as seen as profitable. But at at a three dollar net back, the, that really is just not workable. Okay, Jane. Well, back to you. Longer term, what are the prospects of this gas? Significantly penetrating Asian or European markets, um, and how are how are other major gas exporters like Russia, or Qatar, or Australia uh, responding? Um, um, okay, well, a few questions there, but I'll do my well, best. Well, well, I, well, I would say go in whatever direction you want with that. But I mean, I, you know, I, I think Mark has touched on some of this already. But yeah, the yes, yeah. Um, Russ might respond, and I think, in fact, he, he's right, yeah. I mean, the, 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 in addition to the, the pricing of uh, U.S. LNG, the other major uh, radical transformation is that um, there are no de- they have no destination restrictions. They can go anywhere. And as Mark was saying, or, or you, um, when the projects were first conceived, the U.S. projects, the assumption was the gas would head to Asia because prices were a lot higher there. But as Asian and European prices have converged, or nearly converged, um, the suppliers of the flexible uh, U.S. volumes will want to li- limit shipping costs by uh, sending them to the nearest markets. From the U.S. Gulf Coast, this could either be Latin America or Europe, but given it's, Europe is, looks far more likely, I mean, assuming they, you know, when prices start to work, um, just because uh, Europe has... Uh, liquid hubs and it's also got ample spare regas capacity a lot of the terminals in northwest europe are not really used um so anyway so a lot is is expected to go to europe um on asia or in asia most contracts um with asian buyers aren't expected to start till next year or the year after um assuming price differentials remain narrow which actually a lot of analysts are, are forecasting over that period um Buyers, Asian buyers, may want to try avoiding having to take the LNG to Asia and incur those shipping costs by trying to form alliances with European firms uh, that would either give them access to European regas capacity or maybe um, do some swap deals. You've really seen one between Korea Gas, CoGas, uh, the world's biggest single LNG buyer, well, it was until the new alliance, and it signed a deal with uh, France's EDF Trading. Uh, which gives it the option to sell cargoes to the French firm, and similar alliances are expected. Um, so, yeah, and the idea was, so what's going to happen to traditional exporters in, into Europe? Will they adopt this Saudi-like strategy of, uh, tr- you know, trying to retain market share at all costs? I mean, nobody actually knows for sure, but it does seem that Saudi Arabia, uh, that Qatar and Russia are like to, likely to adopt a, a strategy of volume over value. The idea would be to ride out short-term price pain in anticipation of retaining sharp market share when prices start to recover. I mean, Russia has said it wants to retain its 30% share, hang on to its 30% share of the European market, and it does appear to be making some preemptive moves. Traditionally, uh, both Russia and Qatar price their um, gas or have priced their gas off oil or oil products. But you have seen Gazprom in response to sort of customer demands, um, selling more volumes into Europe through hub pricing or tenders or spot sales. 
Um, in Germany, for example, which is a highly competitive market since about 2013, um, Gazprom's term prices have been pretty similar to hub prices. And I was looking at um, some data Gazprom uh, produced for a recent Markets Day presentation, and that showed that last year its term prices by the end of the year had virtually converged with um, European hub prices. And that actually might help explain why its exports to Europe rose 8% last year, as there were, along with falling prices, oil prices. And it has said it expects um, volumes to stay at around the same level into Europe this year, assuming prices don't rise dramatically. Um, Gatar too can afford to um, lower its prices. Um, it's a uh, uh, liquefaction plant, or uh, well, the break-even price of the liquefaction plants is close to zero thanks to sales of associated liquids so it can probably avoid to you know or happy to uh, let the be happy to let the market sweat it out um, given its location sort of midway between Asia and Europe uh, Gatar has been able to act as a swing supplier uh, moving supplies between Asia and Europe depending what it wants to do in particular markets last year for example and toward and in late 2014, you saw a lot more gas-free gas going into Europe. This was to try and raise prices in Asia by restricting supply there. It worked very well. Um, so if, I think if you see the arrival of substantial um, U.S. volumes into Europe, you'll probably see Gatar-focused spot sales in, in um, Asia. But another thing, um, just on, on term sales, in, into Asia, Gatar is unlike uh, Gazprom, which has been showing more flexibility on um, price linkage. Gatar um, is insisting on oil indexation, continues, continues to insist, and it's also very strict about destination restrictions. So it, it's been, you have seen it actually recently offering sweeteners in other ways. Um, it, in the new market, Pakistan, it recently uh, agreed to weaken the oil slope in the contract, which is the traditional LNG linkage to oil prices. And in India, um, Rasgas, uh, the other big Gatari producer, agreed to a near halving in the price of an existing deal with Petronet, well, which is um, India's biggest LNG importer when it looked like Petronet was going to abrogate the contract because it just said prices were far too high. Totally, and, and they were. They were not reflective of prices in the broader market. So you did see Gatar um, moving there. And on Australia, well, most of the LNG, most of the new capacity has been sold on long-term contracts already. But um, it, there are going to be some spot sales. It will be looking to sell some spot shipments into the market, and it will be that will be in Asia. Um, yes, US LNG could potentially compete, um, if, or Canadian LNG, anything from the West Coast, because the shipping distance is shorter. But basically, uh, shipping from the Gulf Coast or East Coast of the US is likely, I mean, to be too expensive, really, to make those cargoes competitive. Okay, well, thank yeah. you. Sorry. No, no, that's it. That's it? Okay. That, thanks. I, I think you know that 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 really leads in really well to. Um, uh, it's obviously very dynamic, and it leads into a question I had for Tom about you know how the whole LNG pricing uh, uh, is evolving uh, in response to these changes. And you know, Jane, I mean, Jane touched on a lot of this, but I think Tom, if you could tell us how important crude oil indexing 
will be in the future and what other alternative pricing systems could emerge uh, and how fast, um, uh, that would be great. Well, uh, as Jane noted, oil index uh, contracts remain entrenched, but the system is showing cracks as uh, buyers demand more flexibility in contract terms. Um, and this is especially true with destination uh, restrictions. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, companies that a lot of the big buyers that have destination, you know, restrictions have just said, no, we're not paying attention to that and have just, you know, sent the cargoes somewhere else. I mean, uh, so this is, this is already happening. Um, you know, there's one thing to have a strict contract and then there's another thing for the, uh, the people buying the gas to actually go along with the terms as written. Uh, so we are seeing some real, real shakiness in, in some of that. Um, and, and I get a lot of this uh, when I was in Singapore at a uh, gas conference, Gas Tech, uh, talking to buyers. They were absolutely giddy about the idea that, that oil indexation, um, you know, those contracts were just way too inflexible and uh, that they were going to push against that. And uh, they have. Uh, rather markedly since then. Now, but the overall trend uh, appears to be moving toward shorter contracts tied to benchmark pricing at regional gas hubs um, that buyers feel reflect, better reflect market conditions. Um, in other words, they don't understand why, and, and I've had people from Tokyo Gas come here and say, you know, why should I be buying uh, gas on an oil index contract, which isn't, you know, when I look at the Henry Hub and the Henry Hub is not, you know, tied to the oil uh, contract, not like it used to be. So, you know, the rationality, the rationality for oil index contracts is, is really being questioned um, because basically that that's good for a – seller's market, but what we have today is a buyer's market, and it looks like we'll have a buyer's market for at least another seven years, and that can do a lot of damage to the oil index system. Um, anyway, but back to the regional hubs. Now, the U.S. really did its part by skewing oil indexation in favor of contracts tied to Henry Hub. Um, as you know, we pointed out, in 2020, there will be you know, you know, 25% uh, of the gas perhaps will be, you know, ex, you know, available for export from the U.S. and it'll be based on the Henry Hub uh, contract. Um, and so that really has a huge psychological effect on uh, on the system. And European gas is becoming more tied to uh, viable benchmarks in Europe and in the U.K. And in Asia, we're seeing uh, nascent uh, regional benchmarks taking shape in China, Japan, and Singapore. Um, it, and it is especially hopeful that the uh, that the China and you know the China um, benchmarks will really take hold. And one of the reasons why it may is it will also have it has a lot of domestic production that could feed into hubs. Um, so there's a, there's a real rationality, whereas in Singapore and Japan, they're sort of virtual 
uh, or virtual hubs, but um, which don't have the same, uh, you know, basis as the physical trading that could develop in China. But there will be a regional benchmark will will form in Asia, uh, and they're very serious about doing this. They want it. So, uh, just to put it simply, sellers may not like this development, but it does have an air of the future about it, and and sort of an inevitability. Um, that oil indexation may be, may be viable for a certain number of contracts, but it's not going to be the dominant contract scheme in perhaps five, you know, ten years. Okay, thanks, Tom. And, and, and basically, we don't really know exactly what we're, – we're going to something more flexible. We're going to something that's hub-linked, but, it, you know, there's, it, there's a lot of um, – there's uncertainty about exactly what it what it is. It's not like the 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 new template has has been been created yet. No, but it's forming. And 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 one thing we we can say though is that the the oil is a transportation fuel basically worldwide, and and has some you know some some you know power generation in in some markets, but. Basically, it's a transportation fuel, and, and LNG is basically used uh, for power generation, and you know, and I, you know, so you know, the two the two don't have an overlapping uh, competition uh, to any great extent. So, you know, you're you you don't have a rationality behind oil index uh, contracts. Um, to price natural gas, and and as that becomes more obvious, as in the U.S., it just becomes the divorce could become inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's really no reason for, it. and especially if oil prices recover and gas prices don't, that could just be the you know people could just revolt. You know the buyers could just say there's no way, just like the buyers in India said no way when they were stuck with contracts. Based on what a hundred dollar oil uh, when when gas had already when oil had collapsed so you know it, it's a it's a pretty slippery slope for people that want to keep oil indexation alive. Okay, okay, thanks, Tom. Well, yes. <clears throat> why don't we why don't we uh, look uh, sort of uh, back at the U.S. and Canada, you know, in this mark and. Uh, can you tell us when 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 could the when could these US LNG exports start to have an impact on the North American gas market uh in terms of tightening supply and uh and also supporting prices in the US and Canada which are as we said very weak? Sure. Um you know I think when um when all of these LNG export projects were were being proposed and um approved, you know, there was a there was a big hope that this would be a major uh demand boom uh and price and price support for US and Canadian prices, but now it uh it appears that's gonna be a bit of a long slog. Um and the main reason for that is really the the price situation in North America is more of a supply story than a demand story. And what I mean by that is the shale boom has created such an oversupply of gas um in the US and Canada that 
incremental, I'm sorry, incremental LNG exports really aren't likely to provide a whole lot of price support until much of that supply glut is worked off. Um, you know, it's not it's not an exaggeration to say the upstream gas industry has been a victim of its own success. You know, they have steadily improving fracking and horizontal drilling techniques, um, drilling efficiencies, and all that has caused you know North American gas production to explode, particularly in places like the Marcellus Shale and the Eagle Ford Shale, but without really a corresponding increase in demand. And most experts believe supply will continue to outstrip demand at least through the middle of 2017 and maybe longer. Now, EIA, um, uh, the Energy Information Administration, and others do see LNG exports being one ingredient of sort of a demand cocktail that will gradually balance the market. So, you know, as, as Sabine Pass ramps up its... Um, exports in the next year. That terminal alone is expected to export about 1.3 billion cubic feet a day in 2017. Then, you know, you combine that with growing pipeline gas exports to Mexico, expectations of rising industrial demand along the Gulf Coast because of low gas prices, and additional gas demand for power generation in the U.S., and a slightly more bullish picture does start to emerge, and you know enough for EIA to forecast a Henry Hub price of over three dollars in 2017. Now, three dollars isn't exactly enough to send you know producers back into the field to uh, drill, but it is certainly um, it's certainly uh, more attractive to suppliers than the you know 170s and 180s that we're seeing now. You know, one thing to note too is you know in the U.S. and Canada. There's a lot of unpredictability around these projects and the whole LNG export picture going forward. And we just saw that this week when FERC unexpectedly rejected um, the proposed Jordan Cove LNG terminal in Oregon. Um, that was going to, or that the, the plan is for that terminal to actually export Western Canadian gas that would be piped in. Um, to Oregon and then out and then you know um, sent out to Asian markets and it was sort of the one real hope for getting Western Canadian source gas um, out of the glutted Canadian market and you know which is their prices are even worse lower than they are in the U.S. but that isn't likely to happen now until at least 2024 if at all so you know that's just another another sign of um, how long it could be really before LNG exports are meaningful, you know, are meaningful enough to create a permanent or a long-term support under prices. Okay, thanks, thanks, Mark. We've talked a lot about supply, obviously. I, and I have a last question about demand. Um, Jane, do you see signs that the buyers market in LNG and the low level of prices are starting to stimulate? new LNG demand, um, when and how might that happen? Well, for the moment, I ha you have to say no, you don't. Um, I was just looking, Stacey Gas, this um, gas industry body, has just put out preliminary figures for last year showing um, global LNG trade rising about by about 2%. 
um, and that's after about 1% growth the year before. So, I mean, imports aren't increasing at any great rate. I mean, the figures show, obviously, the Asian demand uh, contracting. European demand did go up. The European imports did go up, but that was mainly as a result of Gatar switching supply out of Asia into Europe, um, the market of last resort. That, that said, you are seeing pockets of new demand emerging. Um, in the Middle East and North Africa, um, Egypt and Jordan have joined Dubai and Kuwait as importers. Um, in Europe, you have Lithuania now importing. You're going to have Poland importing very soon. You also have new or relatively new importers in Southeast Asia and South Asia. Pakistan's one. You've got um, uh, Malaysia, Thailand. Um, but essentially, what you, what you can see is that any increases in Southeast Asia or, uh, or South Asia are totally offset by the drops in uh, uh, Japan and Korea, those big markets. In China as well, um, LMG import, imports um, fell for the first time. I think I already said that, actually. Um, India's imports also fell last year, but that was partly as a result of the Rasgas Petronat Petronet disputes, and they're likely to go back up again, but there's lots of factors hindering um, growth in Indian gas demand. Um, so uh, basically, the fact is that even at these low prices, gas is still not uh, competitive enough. It's LNG has to compete against pipeline gas and other fuels, and as a power generation fuel, it's coal. Um, coal is, in most markets, a lot cheaper, and in Places like Europe, where we have established a carbon market cap and trade system, carbon prices are too low to promote coal to gas switching. Um, the exception is the UK, which has its own carbon floor price. Um, and, and you do see um, gas demand increasing as a power generation fuel in Europe. So, so you said, what was the question? It was like, do I see gas demand rising anymore? How might LNG demand rise? Was that the question? Well, it's just more, don't, did, don't these low prices mean that we're going to get some demand growth here? No, not, well, well, you haven't seen it so far. And basically, I mean, the U.S. is the one place where gas can compete with coal um, and does successfully. And I've just seen the EIA has just put uh, something out saying that this year, um, on an annualized basis, uh, gas is um, going to overtake coal as a power generation fuel. So you can see it does. But in most other countries, coal is so cheap that gas cannot get low enough to compete. It's just the one way it could is, which is what European, um, some oil, your major European producers were calling for last year, is a carbon tax, which would penalize coal. And so you can see in the UK that does work. Um, but Governments haven't responded to that. The, the appeal was made ahead of um, the Paris talks. Um, it wasn't taken up. I don't think you're going to see it on anybody's agendas because of you know, the, the wider economic implications for, for countries. The other thing that um, companies are trying to do for themselves in the absence of government action, um, historically, um, the LNG industry has worked by... Um, you know, you don't go ahead with the project until you've sold all the output on long-term contracts. Producers have traditionally sold it to major state-owned end users in, say, Korea, or maybe not state-owned, but Japan, or they've been selling it to the Chinese giants. 
but but that just that model isn't working anymore because those the income the utilities in those countries or the buyers can't sell it on anywhere you know into the into the markets which is one of the reasons they're awash in supply they've well over contracted so one thing that um the big lng producers that have traditionally been reluctant to do but are starting to talk about more is actually creating their own markets this means building their own pipelines pipelines having their own shipping maybe building import terminals possibly at a pinch building a gas-fired power plant somewhere so you have an outlet for your gas but I mean but that hasn't really started yet I have to say um, okay anyway. well thank, thanks Jane I think that's we we're, we're sort of well over other, the time uh, we had planned so let, let, let's let, um, if the coordinator could come back on and open it up to questions from our audience Absolutely. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, you may do so by pressing star then one on your touchstone phone. Again, then a star one to ask a question. We'll pause just a moment to allow questions to queue. And we'll take our first question from Michael Ratner. Please go ahead. Uh, hi, Tom. Uh, it's been a long time. Uh, my, my question kind of builds off of... Uh, the, all the discussion regarding contracts, and but one of the things I didn't hear was anything about the banks and their requirements for financing these projects, and if there's any movement uh, from the banks to accept shorter-term contracts, non-oil index contracts, um, and and build on the the flexibility that we see developing, and then along with that. Um, I'd also like to ask kind of a part two question, which is, do, do uh, the, the speakers see uh, changes in technology to drive down the cost of shipping and liquefying gas, uh, perhaps in the, on the small scale level, but also just how to, how to get those costs down so that it can compete more with coal uh, outside of the U.S.? Thank you. Okay, just to clarify, is the question about the banks, is that, is that about these, the U.S. LNG export projects, or is it about... Um, just LNG projects in general. LNG projects in in general. I mean, the U.S. I, I think you know the uh, the market had you know with 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 our contracts already being I would say significantly different. Will the banks I would say more globally start accepting that? Say in in projects in East Africa or Eastern Med, will they be looking at non oil index pricing and perhaps shorter term contracts to to finance the projects? Okay, thanks. Well, Jane, do you want to at least take on the first part of that question? You mean about where the banks are? I don't yeah, know. Changing their changing their their sort of uh, standards and their their expectations for projects. Um, I mean, this gets sort of the broad broad question that we've discussed, uh, you know, outside of this call about what's the future of the sort of long term the the, the, the LNG um, project model that we've known in the past. Well, I mean, personally, I, I think the era of the traditional large LNG project is probably, um, well, it's definitely over for at least a decade. Um, banks, I'm not sure, because basically the, the problem is, yeah, you, you have to have the buyers. You have to know you've got buyers, really, for people to lend. And buyers, just at the moment, um, I, well, one, they're over-contracted. Two, they, they, well, as this gentleman said, they, they do want more flexible terms. They want shorter-term contracts. They maybe want hybrid pricing. But you haven't seen much movement on the part of uh, would-be suppliers 
to, to offer these terms, which is, I think, why most of them are dead um, or the projects are paralysed at the moment. Yeah, and one way of bringing costs down, which people are looking at, is, you know, modules, building in modules, um, building more... Um, not in situ, if you possibly can help it. You don't build projects in situ. They, you build them somewhere else where labour costs are cheaper. You'll bring them in. Um, people have been looking at FLNG. Well, I mean, we've, we've seen the first, or well, the first project will be coming online this year. There's a quicker, cheaper way of monetizing gas. And then when a field's depleted, you can move, or the idea is then you'll move this, your FLNG vessel off somewhere else. So people are looking, but I think, yeah, I mean, you know, Gorgon was the the height, I think, of the excess, and I don't think you're going to see anything like that anytime soon. Uh, when I was in, this is Tom Haywood, when I was in uh, Singapore, there was talk about the uh, financing by banks and the demands that, I mean, and the way that it's, it's become, like, they have to have these contracts locked down before they'll be financed and but the weird thing is, uh, what they were saying is that's a very peculiar uh, model uh, that banks often lend money, you know, um, and have to take a little risk with their capital. So they see they see some of that kind of uh, lifting, some of those restrictive uh, financing uh, terms. Uh, you know, there were the where the lenders will have to take a little risk, just as they do with anything else that they lend money on. Okay, thanks. Did that answer your question, Michael? Uh, yeah, yes, it did. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Are, are, are there are there other questions? We have no further questions at this time. But once again, it's star one to ask a question. Okay, well, let me. I have a I have a couple of other things, and we're we are, we are sort of nearing the end of our time here. But um, I, Jane, you discussed this to a certain extent about you know Qatar uh, and and how it's responding. But it you know it's it, its position you know as a swing supplier and uh, you know being able to to uh, uh, kind of you know play effectively play the markets LNG markets in Asia and Europe. Kind of against each other, um, uh, you know. How, how is that position changing now uh, with these current well, challenges, and how, how is how are they responding? Well, um, as I say, well, the, I cited a couple of the, the examples where they have shown, you know, more concessions, made more concessions on contracts. Um, the fact of the matter is, yeah, when if the if I should say if and when the U.S. does start exporting bigger volumes um, and it starts exporting both east and west then it will challenge Qatar as the role uh, you know for the role of swing supplier and rather than being a sort of price set or trying setting prices in you know in Europe or in Asia you know Qatar might end up being more of a price taker because it just won't have that same influence you know being it won't be able to tighten markets the way it can can now Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, you're, you haven't seen that much change in Gattery policy. I mean, it's still got the moratorium on the North Field, which means that its capacity um, is, well, it is roughly 77 million tons a year. It could maybe be bottleneck to increase it more. If, I mean, the one big thing it could do, but whether it ever would, is say, okay, because it's, it's LNG plants are really, really low cost, feedstock, you know, 
virtually free, is say, we're going to build more capacity. And, and they'd be able to build it far cheaper than virtually anybody else. And, and that could be putting down a marker for any other new projects that might be in the pipeline, because they know they probably wouldn't be able to compete on price. Okay, thanks. Well, are there um, are there any other questions from the, from the audience? Uh, we're, we're we're really getting at the end of our time here. So, any last questions? It looks like we have a follow up from Michael Ratner. Okay, thank you. Hi, uh, Tom. Uh, sorry to monopolize the questions, but uh, I was wondering if the speakers could also uh, address the uh, growing. Um, uh, the growing development of LNG trading and how that's going to uh, change the market. Spot market, you mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, you mean by like portfolio players? Uh, portfolio players, uh, more um, you know, uh, financial institutions, uh, just the you know uh, the growing nature of, of LNG trading and what you know is that going to give the banks? kind of enough assurance to say, okay, well, you know, we know the cargo is going to move, so we don't need the 20-year contract, uh, things like that. You know, that as, as more forward markets, uh, futures uh, start yeah. to develop and, and more trading around LNG uh, as a, as more as a commodity uh, than has been in the past. Right. Uh, don't know, does somebody else, Tom, do you want uh, to Tom, do you want to take that? Yeah, that was another thing that was, was discussed, and that was one reason why um, I had mentioned that people were seeing that the, um, you know, that the necessity to to lock down uh, the financial, uh, you know, viability of a contract. I mean, of a of a, you know, the financial viability with deals of a project um, is sort of, you know, not as necessary when you have a lot of spot trading. You take. Um, the United States, where you have people financing uh, companies going out into the field and getting and and developing gas and and oil. I mean, they don't have a you know the U.S. producers don't don't have all their gas locked down. They don't have it all hedged uh, when they go into these projects, but it's still financed uh, because there's a mechanism for. The, the project. I mean, if you think that if the banks don't think that the LNG market is viable, then they wouldn't finance a project. But the viability of the LNG market as it becomes more liquid, um, well, it'll all change because these long-term contracts, <clears throat> you know, you're just not going to have the 20-year contracts and, and, and such, not for huge amounts of gas. I mean, you know, you might see five-year contracts, uh, you know, become more prevalent. Uh, people don't want to lock in. Um, and as long as there's a buyer's market, and, and, I, I, and I really believe that the buyer's market is going to extend a lot longer than people think it will, simply because, um, as you know, that the prices, you know, that the amount of LNG, you'll have, you'll have three Cotters out there, Cotter, Australia, and the U.S., where you'll be able to just, you know, have three centers of, of synergy, and the U.S. You know, is a, you know, you have portfolio players. You'll have a lot of the uh, market right now in LNG is spot. Um, surprisingly, so it isn't all locked down. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of LNG on the market that's being bought and sold. And as you said, you know, you have you have trading houses that are trading cargoes and 
and with more diversions, you know, you'll have more arbitrage. And, and I think it's just going to grow into a very liquid global market. I think it'll be very healthy for everyone. Um, and it'll have very interesting long-term impacts on the U.S. market uh, beyond what we're seeing today, you know, and, and, how, and how the U.S. market pricing is going to become more integrated with the, with the world. And, and people always were afraid of that, but they thought it would drive U.S. prices up. But in actuality, I think it's going to have a dampening effect on, uh, you know, U.S. prices well into the future because of the cost of liquefying and sending gas overseas. Okay, well, I think that's <clears> – <throat> thank you, Tom. I, I think that's really all we have got time for. We've got we're, – we're really over the time that we had planned for this, and I wanted to, to thank everybody for participating and um, also just remind you that we, are ha we will have another um, virtual roundtable uh, in April, and we look forward to um, uh, your participation in that as well. Um, so thanks, everybody, and um, have a good day. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.